Hello, and welcome to Faith and Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. A couple summers ago, I got a package in the mail that I was not expecting, which does not happen very often. So I was a little bit excited as I ripped open this envelope and found a battered copy of a book that I had never heard of inside by an author whose name I did not recognize. The book was called The Myth of Certainty, and it was written by some guy named Daniel Taylor. As I stood there looking at it, it dawned on me that I had heard of this book. It was a book that a good friend had referenced a couple of weeks earlier in a conversation we'd had, and he had apparently unbeknownst to me, bought a copy and had it mailed to my house. So that afternoon when I got a chance, I sat down and started reading and immediately realized that I was in the presence of a kindred spirit. The book ultimately proved to be deeply encouraging to me. And it was encouraging in large part because it speaks to a situation or a state of affairs that I'm familiar with. It speaks to the experience of feeling caught between the sometimes abrasive skepticism of the secular world when it comes to religious belief, and then, on the other hand, the unhelpful, problematic certainty of fundamentalist Christianity. That's a tension I've lived with for years and not always known how to negotiate. I personally have faith in the gospel story. I find it to be the most compelling explanation for the human condition and the longings that we all experience. But as time goes by, I find myself less and less certain about any number of doctrinal claims I was raised to view as non-negotiable. Daniel Taylor has been writing and speaking on the interplay between faith, doubt, and certainty in the modern world for over 40 years. He seemed like a good guy to call. Daniel Taylor, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Uh, A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Dan Koch, gave me your book, the myth of certainty a couple of summers ago. And that really precipitated um, a lot of back and forth between me and Dan about the book and is certainly kind of the the main thing. And there's a lot of stuff that comes out of my experience of reading that book that I'd like to talk to you, but that's the main thing I'd like to focus on. But you are or were a professor mostly at Bethel College in Minnesota. You've been a writer who's penned essays, worked on a translation of the Bible, and published numerous books. You've also been a speaker and, on top of all that, a leader of international tours. And before we dive into talking a little bit about your book, The Myth of Certainty, I do want to just ask you a little bit about when you started to think of yourself as a writer. Do you remember kind of when you made a turn from what is often the case of just somebody who loves books to thinking, no, actually, I'm going to take myself seriously as a writer. All right. I'll be honest. I still don't think of myself as a writer, uh, partly because I was a lit teacher for so many years. And when I think writer, I think Faulkner, Dostoevsky, um, Dante, you know, I have such a high view of a writer that I always, even when I started writing books in the mid 80s, uh, thought of myself as a teacher who also writes. And uh, I retired a little bit early 10 years ago, and so I'm no longer teaching. So I'm kind of just left with the descriptor of, of writer. But 
I uh, I started writing my first book, which is The Myth of Certainty. I don't know if you know, it's a almost 35-year-old book. Yeah, yeah. Um, out of a felt need, not uh, of a sense of, oh, I'm going to be a writer. Um, I actually, you know, when people say, well, when did you first start writing? I often say uh, writing starts with reading. And so I started becoming a writer when people started reading books to me and when they started telling me stories. Uh, I can remember as about a four-year-old making a vow, holding a book in my hand, not being able to read and sort of threatening the book, I'm going to read you someday. And um, of course, I wasn't thinking of being a writer at all, but I think my training uh, any writer's training starts with reading and uh, with hearing storytellers. And I was fortunate um, in my childhood to have a wonderful storyteller in the person of my father who loved to tell stories about his own past. And um, so I think that started forming me as a writer, but I'm I'm still only reluctantly um, accept the title. If you're not Faulkner... You're not a writer. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, that's, I mean, I don't think that's true, but I think it's in my bones. And I, you know, I think people claim to be artists too easily, you know, uh, artists in the big category. Um, So I don't want to be one of those people. So The Myth of Certainty was your first book that you published? Right. Okay. I thought 92, maybe even published before that, late 80s. Yeah. It's gone through a various publishers, and each one puts their own uh, date on it when they release it. Got it. Okay. The copy I have is from 92. So, yes, I mean, it feels, it felt to me so relevant, so fresh, so encouraging. Um, let me attempt a synopsis, a really brief synopsis. You can tell me what I've left out. But what I took away was that the, the general premise of this book, The Myth of Certainty, is about the sort of the dilemma or the lot in life that is faced by somebody you refer to as the reflective Christian. Somebody's kind of caught between uh, the skeptical secular world and then a kind of rigid fundamentalism within their own you know, religious tradition of Christianity. And then you, you spend a good amount of time talking about the role of reason and faith as these two main paths that human beings have, have kind of gone down in terms of their attempts to pursue truth. And then kind of ultimately the question of whether we can really have certainty that we've ever found the truth. So there's a lot in there. What am I, what am I leaving out? Well, you're leaving out... Uh... I don't know what the subtitle of yours is. The, the the title I wanted originally was The Reflective Christian and the Risk of Commitment. And I finally got a publisher to put that as the subtitle. So um, the, the a key element for me in that book and in all my thinking about faith since is the idea of risk. Uh, and I, my, my belief that all, almost all really significant things in life involve risk. Uh, it's true of love. It's true of friendship. It's true of business. It's true of art. Um, so why shouldn't it be true with God? Um, so if you don't have certainty, which I don't think we have with the important things in the human experience, then uh, to commit to anything, uh, even any expression of values, involves a risk. And 
accepting that risk as part of my uh, relationship to God um, became an important I, uh, part of how I think about faith. So that that's a second that's a second element that I, I would say is very important in the book. Okay, I'm great. I'm glad you mentioned that. I I take greater or lesser amounts of notes, and I don't often like reference the notes within the context of actually talking with somebody, but I'll just say that I ended up writing, like going back through the entire book and just pulling out so many quotes, far more than I could ever like access or use actually as we talk, but I'm looking right now at a, at a, at a pull quote um, where you say... I'm glad you have those because it's been yeah. a few decades since I've read that book. Let's actually start with this idea of kind of who the reflective Christian is. And I, I will read a brief quote and, and maybe we can kind of toss this around a little bit. This is, this is just about the idea of reflectiveness generally, but I'm, I'm also curious about how, you know, kind of this, this person, and it should be noted that you have quite a few, I don't know, maybe it's just four or five, but they go on for a bit, kind of these like mini fictional episodes or anecdotes that are, are very well written and sprinkled throughout the book, and they kind of center around a guy who works at a conservative Christian college, and he's like going to these bigger uh, conferences. So, but that that person is maybe a sort of a, I don't know if that's a cipher for the reader, if that's kind of uh, about, you know, you, and I want to ask you about that, but let me just, let me read you this quote. Reflectiveness, you say then, is a character trait deeply rooted in what one essentially is. It helps define one's fundamental experience of reality, and the life of a reflective person is more likely to be interesting, less likely to be serene, more likely to be contemplative, less likely to be active, more likely to be marked by the pursuit of answers and less by the finding of them. The result is a <laughs> the result is a high potential for creativity, curiosity, and discovery, but also for paralyzing ambivalence, alienation, and melancholy. And I found myself thinking when I read that, ah, how do you know me so well? Um, the, the ref, I've got the reflectors that have said exactly that. I, I sort of took that from the afterward that's in my copy. You made it sound like people have really, I don't know in what numbers, but you know, reached out to you after reading the book and saying, gosh, I'm glad somebody has kind of had my experience as well. Maybe, maybe actually my opening gambit should just be like, where were you at in your life when you decided to write this book? You've already alluded to the fact that you sort of felt compelled to write it. Where were you at in your life? And basically, why did you decide to write this particular book? Well, I was in my early 30s. I had been teaching for about 10 years. Uh, I had just led a, a semester-long um, study of literature with students in England. And got to know them better than one generally knows one's students. And um, so I wrote that book in part uh, to clarify my own thinking and my own, you know, to sort of find out what it is I believe and how I think, which I think writing usually does. Um, and also uh, from a felt need about my students. And um, I mean, I, I don't think I ever from the age of five when I, you know, made a formal commitment um, to faith. I don't think I ever thought of myself as not a Christian, but I've wandered in the woods a fair amount, especially in my teens and 20s. And um, 
and I found my students wandering in the same woods. And so I just, I kind of wrote it as, you know, trying to, let's, let's think about this together and see if we can't um, avoid some false ideas and, uh, and hold on to some true ones. It feels like the world, I mean, I'm 37. It feels like the world has changed a lot, even since I was a kid growing up in, a, in an evangelical context in the Midwest. Um, what was the reception like in the community that you were a part of at that time? Were these questions and, and these kind of ideas fair game to float, and were people generally appreciative? Did you get any pushback? How, how, you know, when the book was published 35-odd years ago, what, what was the result? Well, as I say, I got lots of letters, later got emails that said things like, it's like you read my mind, or I thought I was the only person who felt thought this way and and that kind of idea and you know quite a few of them thanked me for you know articulating sort of where they were um the book didn't get extensively reviewed at all i remember one reviewer at the time said there's nothing of value here for the christian if you have doubts about faith just read a good book of apologetics which which i thought well this person uh, doesn't understand the situation that they, you know, that's, that whole attitude is exactly what, uh, is troubling to many people and drives some of them away from faith. But, um, I didn't get a lot of negative feedback. I, I, I got more ignored than I got negative feedback. I did, I, I did get a lot of speaking engagements and, um, when I was introduced to audiences, they often butchered the title instead of the myth of certainty, sometimes they would say it's the certainty of myth. <laughs> but the worst one was introduced to a church group once uh, as the author of the myth of Christianity. So I had to quickly <laughs> explain that that was not the title of the book. Man, not I wouldn't have thought it would be a, a hard title to, to get your mouth around. Um, reflectiveness, I mean, I read that long quote, and I'm laughing because I, I personally feel like it describes me with talking about paralyzing, a tendency toward paralyzing ambivalence, but also a high potential for curiosity. Is would you, Do you think that reflectiveness is sort of an ingrained watermark of our personalities, something that we're just sort of saddled with, such that there's just going to be some percentage of, of people of any, you know, faith tradition with a significant number of adherents who kind of fit into this camp of the the reflective Muslim, the reflective Christian, the person who's just curious and not content with sort of canned answers? Well, I think, yeah, I think uh, reflectiveness, saying I'm going to stop being reflective is, is sort of like saying I'm going to stop breathing. It, it is just, it's a habit of mine that I actually think is a, uh, in most expressions is a healthy habit of mine. It's curiosity. It's wanting to know why. It's ex exploring. It's a truth-seeking um, attribute. But it also can lead to uh, your, to what I call soul weariness. Your your um, your mind works so hard and definitely to get to where you want to go, and it just wears you out like tires spinning on ice, you know, lots of movement, but no forward progress. Um, but I think it, you know, I found in my own case, I found relief from a kind of 
what seemed to be um, a fruitless uh, reflection on things to reflecting my uh, in directions that I found helpful for myself. Yeah, there's another there's another section where you talk about how you know sort of at length you acknowledge all of the the questions basically that people could ask and kind of boiling it all the way down to like well, what do we even mean when we when we talk about thinking? What do we mean by that word? And then and then you, afterwards you kind of come to a full stop and say that you know the questions we could ask these questions forever. Um, but we don't go on forever. We have finite lives and we have to, at some point sort of move in a certain direction. I mean, we don't have to, we could just sit on that frozen lake and spin our tires forever, but nobody, nobody wants to do that. And so we feel, um, compelled to interrupt the process. And, and now I'm actually, I can see this quote here. At some point we feel compelled to interrupt the process and demand a decision of the reflecting mind regarding what's true and what we can affirm and build a life on that seems great but to the extent that reflectiveness is sort of a an ingrained uh thing like breathing what what is your advice for people as to as to how to gently lovingly but also sort of firmly demand a decision of themselves or sort of you know guide themselves towards the resolution of doubt or is that even possible do you just sort of have to roll with the punches and as you mentioned later in the book just sort of take hope in the fact that doubts can wax and wane over a lifetime? Well, um, that's a really huge question. But uh, I think it's a little bit like the job jar your mother had when you were uh, a petulant adolescent and bored. And she said, fine, here, let reach in here, I'll give you a job to do. There's a, a, there's a great sense in which you can commit and act in faith and should act in faith before you have everything answered. And I think uh, skeptical believers, and that's that's the title of a much later book I wrote on, in this same area, um, have a tendency to think it's not honest for me to commit or act and if I'm not 100% sure of the faith or of God or that kind of thing. But I think, again, it's like so many other areas of life. Well, you know, one analogy for faith for me is marriage. Um, you can uh, be in a relationship at the right time in life and think this is a person I love, but you also could say, well, but maybe they're not the right person. Maybe a, there's a better person. Maybe I shouldn't commit to this person because he or she has, you know, these flaws or whatever, or we're not quite hundred percent compatible. And so you would wait and wait and wait. And of course you would never marry. Um, because there's always the possibility that, that there's a even more suitable person for you. So in so many areas of life, again, in business, in, in um, intellectual life, et cetera, one makes commitments uh, without uh, total and perfect knowledge. You have to in order to uh, accomplish anything in life at all. So why not in faith? Um, so do, do the acts of faith. I, I sometimes talk about faith as a performance and most people would say oh that's terrible just to perform it no i i don't think so i think you're in a play you're in a story characters and stories do things if a if a story if the characters in a story are just passive and paralyzed it's a boring story it's, it's a bad story bad novel so uh you act and often the acting produces the faith you actually see hmm that god does work when i act 
and that gives me more grounds for faith. That's poignant, and there's a lot there. I'm kind of thinking of my own my own experiences, of course. Um, I do want to I do want to talk about certainty and kind of make sure I'm clear on on what you mean by certainty, or sort of what what we can or cannot have in terms of certainty. So you you contrast it essentially with with truth, or you sort of like cast it in in light of the idea of the pursuit of truth. Can truth exist despite, and you're, you know, spoiler alert, your claim is that we cannot ever have total certainty that we have seen or, or obtained access to capital T truth, but that that shouldn't completely paralyze us. And that you, you put in sort of, you know, Christian, some Christian Orthodox claims, some basically th- basic things like God's existence, his love for his creation, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Can't, can't be certain, cannot be certain that those are true, but you can affirm by faith that they are true. So am I getting that right? Am I, am I hearing you right on that? Well, I think there's a, I'm, I, the way I have thought about faith for, for um, decades now is as a story into that God is telling the world into which we are invited to be characters, which is a tremendous gift to us. Um, Certainty I define as no possibility of being wrong, which only exists in very narrow parts of the human experience. Two plus two equals four. Um, certain kinds of scientific experiments give us certainty, but there are so many areas of life where where we don't have it. Um, so I think uh, God chose the form of story to reveal himself to us. The the scriptures are essentially a big storybook. Now they also have assertions in them, like the Ten Commandments, for instance, but even the Ten Commandments happen within a story, the story of the Exodus, and that is probably why it's those 10 and not not some of the others of the 613 commandments that a rabbi once told me exist in the Old Testament. So we need both story and assertions. The the story allows for much more complexity, mystery, um, and so on than the straight assertions do, because stories uh, uh, treat us as, come to us as whole persons, affect us as whole persons, intellect, emotions, will, even the body. Um, and assertions tend to only um, appeal to the intellect or to the mind um, so we need stories to help us understand the assertions, but we also need the assertions to help us in interpreting the stories. So this God is love is an assertion. It's sort of straightforward, pow, God is love. All right, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you the story of David and Jonathan. Let me, or, you know, let me tell you um, all of these various, of God's love for uh, his creation and how it showed itself in choosing the people of Israel, and you know, over and over again, we'll tell we'll tell these stories. You ask a philosopher what love is, and they will tend to get more and more abstract and use uh, more and more abstract terminology. You ask a, a storyteller what love is, um, and they'll say, "Well, let me tell you about this guy named Romeo and this woman named Juliet," and that's after two hours. That's, that's love. That's part of what love is. 
so you understand it, it as a whole person. And that's what I think God is doing for the world. Right? I want both assertions and story, but I think uh, we understand the assertions in the context of the stories. I was raised with a completely different view, which I've realized, I've come to realize is not um, one that I subscribe to, but cognitive assent to truth propositions was like the ball game. Yeah. And you touch on that in your book, but it puts you in sort of a horrible bind um, the further you get down certain scientific roads. And I think, you know, specifically within the context of story and the story or stories, the meta narrative, if you will, or the individual stories that are sort of the, the, the keystones of the biblical text, it's actually really, it's freeing. And I feel like I would echo that I, I personally would say that I need some level of, um, you said you need assertions and story, but sort of the story drives the the train. I, I need there to be some truth. Jesus Christ needs to have actually been a real human being who did or said certain things or said things very close to what has come down to us. But do I need, you know, for me personally, do I need the walls of Jericho to actually have fallen? Does the flood need to have been a worldwide event? Does that story not work anymore if it's not, say, a literal six-day creation? Yeah, my answer is it doesn't know. It doesn't have to. I'm perfectly happy to accept it if that's if it proves, you know, uh, in eternity that that exactly what happened, I have no problem with it. But I don't, um, I don't think Genesis, for instance, is trying to tell us the mechanism by which God created. Uh, Genesis is telling us that the first four words are the key words in the beginning, God, and um, that's that's the thing. That's the point of the story. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I do not disparage doctrine. I do not disparage theology. That is, those things are human thinking about God's revelation. And often they're very wise and they have insight, but they are human thinking about the revelation. So we create systems out of the stories that are in the Bible and they help to guide us somewhat. But we should have certain humility about how clearly our assertions, our doctrines, um, uh, contain God's truth. So I, I believe in, absolutely believe in truth. I just believe we should have some humility in um, how much of it we think we have at any given point. I think we have, I think we have enough to put us in a right relationship with God. So I'm not, uh, I'm not cynical about truth at all, but I, but I think humility goes a long ways in how uh, that we don't strangle the truth and turn it into untruth. Uh, certain pursuits of orthodoxy or doctrine have really been an almost anti-unification agent within the within the Christian church, which just doesn't seem to be what Jesus Christ was calling us to. But it does also seem to me um, to be a human impulse to try to understand and, and clarify who or what God is. And on top of that, I have a conservative disposition that sort of, I think, wants to to clench at times and sort of hold on to certain things. So when I got to the section in your book where you where you where you just talk about how you actually approach, you, you sort of agonized about how to approach your doubt in light of the fact that you had at times doubts about things that previous Christians had literally been tortured or killed over. Um, I appreciated that element of your book. Well, I, you know, I, 
I say about that book and about uh, the later book I wrote <clears throat> that um, I want both to comfort and, and to kick in the butt. So I want to uh, assure that doubters and questioners, there's a place for you in the kingdom, even despite what your local church might say or people you know. Um, I think God's okay with hard questions. Jesus asked a very hard question of God on the cross, why have you forsaken me? So I think if Jesus can ask that question, we can ask our questions. Um, but it's also a kick in the butt because I think it's, uh, let's fish or cut bait here. I'm, I'm not, I've kind of got worn out with heroic doubting um, in the sense of, oh, I'm too smart, too intelligent, too inquisitive to ever actually commit to anything. Um, which I think is just a recipe for a meaningless life. So there, you know, I, I have I have a little bit of both. Regarding your other point, and I don't know if I quoted this in Myth of Certainty or not. There's the ancient, I think, medieval principle: uh, in essential things, unity; in doubtful things, liberty; in all things, charity. And I, one of the things that has happened to me from the time of writing myth of certainty to the present is that my circle of what's an essential thing has shrunk. And, um, but I don't think it's shrunk to the point that I, that I've made uh, faith meaningless because it's so, you know, so vague or attenuated. Um, I do think there are essential things that if you can't affirm those, then, it, then you're um, not acting with integrity and calling yourself a Christian. But, I was raised as a fundamentalist, and I have a soft spot in my heart for fundamentalists, unlike some people. Um, but for fundamentalists, there was that essential thing is very big and is very big, and almost everything they believe is in it. So I, I also tell people, doubt your doubt. You know, unrelieved skepticism um, might help you to avoid error, but it also will uh, cause you to miss a lot of truth. So, um, you know, ask yourself, how much commitment, how much risk am I willing to take in order to increase the amount of meaning in my life, the amount of significance? And I think you sh we should be uh, willing to accept quite a bit. A couple of the antidotes to doubt that you give in the book are calling to mind personal experiences that you have had with God, with transcendence, and then also sort of leaning on people through whom or recalling times when there have been people through whom you have experienced or encountered God. Uh, has that continued to be, have those continued to be sources of encouragement for you in the, in the 30 years since you wrote this book? Absolutely. And I would, I would say this, you know, we, people talk about reason and, and reasoning your way to faith and that kind of thing. And uh, I think reason is a great gift of God, and we should use it as much as we can for as far as it will carry us, while also recognizing its limitations. But there are other ways that God shows himself to us, including revelation, including direct experience, including the imagination, including intuition. You know, there's lots of parts of uh, human makeup uh, and God will uh, approach us and address us through through all of them, not just through reason, although he'll use that as well.
And and I, I I'm um, people that often ask writers, what's who's your audience? I have two answers. I give one is kindred spirits, and I don't know who they are. That is, other people out there who think or feel or have experiences like me, or or at least profit from them. And my second answer is the cloud of witnesses. I write for the cloud of witnesses. I have on my computer my um, uh, my page that the photo that comes up every time I start my computer is of a wonderful uh, mentor of mine named Ed Erickson and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and they're standing side by side because uh, Ed Erickson helped Solzhenitsyn to uh, come out with an abridged version of Gulag Archipelago. And I and they they're they're both have passed away and i see them as the cloud of witnesses and every time i see their photo i it's an impetus to me you better take seriously the writing you're doing today um because that cloud of witnesses has included many people both of course writers but many others who have not written who have shaped my faith so i see it as you know, they, God, I know more about God and have experienced, literally, not just head knowledge, experienced God because of them. And it's part of my calling to try to do the same for others. You are, you are verging into another area uh, that you've written a bit about, the idea of spiritual legacies. But I have one more question. Let's, let's tie up our conversation about the myth of certainty uh, by just just noting again, as and kind of maybe expanding on, I guess what I noted already, coming back to this idea that you know this book came out thirty years ago, and it just feels like to me, the day and age that we live in is one in which the reflective Christian, uh, you know, maybe has like a in some ways maybe not a different profile, but faces maybe a, a slightly modified set of of challenges um, or stumbling blocks and or has different tools or at their disposal things that they're not maybe going to get pressed as hard on within the church thankfully um, it's just, it is a day it does feel like a day of pretty extreme ideological purity tests on both sides of the the ideological political even theological divide at least in our nation do you do you feel like to the extent that there are people that you are you know younger people younger reflective Christians that you're still uh, interacting with who are still writing to you I mean you're talking to one of them right now do you do you feel like there's anything different um, that you would say to us or anything that you that you sort of feel like well you you, you know at least this is a little bit easier for you guys or gosh I wouldn't want to be in my mid thirties at this point in the world, like how, how have things shifted in the last 30 years such that if you kind of did a, a mega forward for a new edition, a new print run of this book that you would kind of be mindful of? Well, I actually put a, a start toward that in a ep, um, epilogue that I wrote for one version of this book. And I don't know if it's in that 92 version of yours or not. Um, I would say a, a tremendous shift from when I grew up, to now is that I grew up in the age when um, ap- Christian apologists were battling the Enlightenment. And today, Christian apologists work in the context of postmodernism. And that's a whole different ballgame. 
when I was, you know, a kid, I, you, it was very rationalistic and, you know, here's an answer to, here's proofs of God or evidence, you know, strong evidences that demand a verdict to quote one well-known book of that time. And, uh, you just had, and I, I, it caused me to become a proof monger. I always thought if I just read the right book or hear the right speaker or just think clearly enough that I'll come up with absolute answers to every objection about faith that will convince me and everyone who hears me. And that just exhausted me eventually because um, it never quite worked. Uh, postmodernism uh, emphasizes stories. And uh, basically, Christian apologists have discovered or should discover that the uh, battling enlightenment approach was answering questions that young people are no longer asking. And that the Bible maybe wasn't attempting to answer in the first place. Right. So younger people tend to be skeptical about absolute truths uh, and aren't looking for you to prove um, your faith through argument. What they're looking for is to prove your faith by how you live. Uh, do you live with integrity? That's a stronger proof than uh, a logical proof. And uh, one of the reasons that you know Christianity, especially conservative Christianity, is under fire is because in the modern context, if you're not uh, sold out to helping the poor, if you're not uh, on the side of uh, diversity and sexuality and stuff, you're seen to be hard-hearted and T intolerant and all these things, which is proof that your uh, worldview is bankrupt. Doing apologetics today uh, is is to a whole new a whole new audience. That's why the subtitle of my book, The Skeptical Believer, is telling stories to your inner atheist. And I play on this idea that I that I literally have an inner atheist who's always saying, "Well, what about this? What about that?" every time I make a faith assertion. Uh, and the only thing that quiets him down is uh, a good story. So my, you know, essentially my, my uh, apologetic now is that faith is, Christianity is the greatest story ever told, which uh, an old phrase. Um, and I realize I can't prove that to you. All I can do is testify to it. And if you're attracted to it, uh, you'll, you'll prove it or not in your own life. Yeah, that's just so compelling to me. It really is. I've actually put in mind of a book, the uh, new David Bentley Hart book, his book about universalism and the idea of eternal conscious torment, whether that's a, a thing, whether that's really that idea of hell is at all rooted in early Christianity. But in, in it, he just at one point appeals to this idea of, um, you know, his argument is, man, how could, how could Christians at, le at the very least not want the best possible outcome to be the actual story that reality reflects? And you could go a lot of different ways with that, but just, just he, it, it felt so resonant to me because it was like a, a story, an outcome, a narrative arc is so almost biologically ingrained or appealing um, to us as people that it just seems a better way to conduct a conversation, let alone an argument. Well, it's actually how our brain is structured. Um, psychologists and biologists will tell you that the brain is constantly looking for a plot. It gets 
all the stimuli way more than it knows what to do with, and it's looking for a plot thread. It, it, the, play, the brain is constantly creating stories. When you, you know, I've noticed often in church when the preacher's sort of droning on, people are their heads are kind of looking down, they're looking at their bulletin, and and if the preacher uses a story prompt like that reminds me of the time that or anything like that, suddenly heads go up and they look at them because they their brains has a story is coming. Uh, let's you know, let's pay attention. Maybe this will be interesting. Uh, so I, you know, and I think you know, God made both our brains and God is the one who's telling us this compelling story. So uh, they, they mesh for me. Well, before I let you go, I, I do want to try to ask you a few questions about this idea of spiritual legacies. I think you've written at least a couple of books on this idea. And I have to, I have to acknowledge as I pivot, you have, you're a pretty ambitious, uh, omnivorous is not quite the right word, but like you've written a lot of different stuff. It looks like you have a series of mystery novels about like murders that happen around a Bible translator. You have, uh, there's a really poignant essay that I, that I read, um, about your mom and her struggle with dementia at the end of her life. You've, you've cast a wide net. Um, sometimes it feels like people just write about one thing, but you've, in addition to writing about doubt, faith, reason, and certainty, you have written about this idea of uh, spiritual legacies. And the, the reason I felt like you were almost starting to, to move in that direction was um, or w- when you were talking about um, Solzhenitsyn and your own mentor was that it feels like, it feels apropos within the context of talking with a writer about how faith and writing interact, that part of the legacy that we leave behind as writers is our writing itself, which is which is a powerful idea. Writing is how we can, you know, make contact with the dead or reading, I suppose. And writing is how we can conceivably make contact with those who maybe aren't even born yet. But um, it also feels inc- kind of incredibly weighty. And you don't seem to have been, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the mystery novels, you don't seem to have been like too uh, down in the mouth about that. You've written some fun stuff. How do you think about your writing is something that is kind of an, an inheritance to your own family and also something that you leave behind for who knows, you know, literally God knows who to, to pick up uh, the crumbs of and kind of be encouraged by maybe for decades after you pass on. How, is you, how do you think of writing as your, part of your own legacy? Well, I do, um, I do teach and do workshops, et cetera, and written a book on what I call spiritual legacy, uh, which I define as the passing of wisdom and blessing from one life to another. And I do think that's what writing does. And the, the greatest writing does it uh, to the greatest degree. We, we go to writers for wisdom, not, not necessarily intellectual knowledge, but wisdom about what life's about, what the hu- human condition is about, how to think about it, how to feel about it. And great writing, or even good writing, is, is a blessing to the reader. It's not just a pastime or just entertainment. It, the reader, you are better prepared for life because of reading something uh, significant. So I see my own, um, my own writing. I try to see it in those terms without, you know, uh, aggrandizing it too much. 
but I would like my writing to be a source of wisdom or insight or discernment for people, and I would like it to be a blessing for them. And as you say, I've gone all over the place in different kinds of books, including one about premature babies written with a neonatologist friend of mine, one about Celtic Christianity and little islands off of Scotland and Ireland, um, because I found wisdom there and I found blessing there in Celtic Christianity, um, which I hadn't been aware of at the time. And so I, you know, I think one of the primary carriers of spiritual legacy is story. And so I encourage people to write memoir, spiritual memoir, tell some of the stories of your life, your successes, your failures, where you've met God, where God has seemed distant from you, what it's like to get up at four in the morning to milk the cows, any kinds of things. Um, these are a great blessing to those you care about, to children, to colleagues, maybe as a, as you allude to a great granddaughter you'll never meet, but who will read these stories from your great grandma and think, wow, there's, you know, there's stuff here for me. So, um, yeah, I, I do hope that my writing um, has some of that component to it. In your book, Creating a Spiritual Legacy, where you sort of lay out some ideas about how people can do this and just share your sort of theory of the case of why this is important. At the very beginning of the book, you say a legacy is the radiations of significance from a life, which I thought was a beautiful turn of phrase, as it is lived and after it is over. And the, the idea of mortality seems to be um, a rich one within the context of legacy. Legacy is to some extent a word that we associate with people who are dead. That is the, the, the legacy is something that you leave behind and is sort of only fully, that, that story of your life is only fully told once you're dead. W within the context of writing, of course, there's, there's this idea of, I think for a lot of writers, and it's not always a, a bad one, maybe it's not always a good one either, but there's this sort of this desire to not be forgotten or to leave a mark on the world, to not be invisible. Um, that may be a part of, of some people's impulse to write, and certainly just to, to do all the other things that writers want to do with their work. But that idea of mortality, uh, and, and even I think more, more specifically, the idea that every human being at some point is going to be forgotten, frankly, is going to turn to dust and everybody they've ever known and everybody who's ever known them is going to be gone and forgotten as well. Seem, seemed to me like it was, as I was reading that, somehow related. Like we have to take our lives really seriously um, because it's impossible not to leave an imprint on other people. So we're either going to have a good spiritual legacy or a bad spiritual legacy. But we, there's also, it feels like there's something tied up in that um, that causes us, maybe it's humility, to just remember that it's mainly like those people that we're directly interacting with that we're leaving a mark on. Um, and that even if we're writers, we're probably not going to be read forever. <laughs> or maybe not so... even now. <laughs> As the man who once got a royalty statement that told him that uh, I owed the publisher money for my last quarter because more books had been returned than sold. Okay. Ouch. So, so, yeah, I, I tell people um, passing on a spiritual legacy and, and telling some of the stories of your life is not ego uh, fulfillment. 
it is a responsibility. It's a form of testimony. We are called to testify, um, you know, and so, uh, and I think of writing generally as testimony, and I think of spiritual legacy writing especially as testimony, and uh, God will do with it what God decides to do with it. Uh, and so I, I feel very free from having to be successful as a writer or have a big platform, as they always talk about, or have 100,000 uh, Twitter followers or anything like that, because I don't really feel like it's my responsibility to be successful. It's just my responsibility to be faithful. Let me ask you in, in closing, and let me just thank you before I ask you this last question, because it's it's just really been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, as I say, I, I have certainly been encouraged by this book. Some random guy who grew up in Ohio, moved to California, and now lives in the Pacific Northwest, had this book that you wrote 30 years ago, thrust into my hand two summers ago uh, by a friend who thought I would benefit from it, and I read it, and it was hugely encouraging. So thank you for, for spending your life in this way and choosing to do this, and thanks for coming on the show. Um, let me, let me just ask you about, you know, with no other criteria than what's nearest and dearest to your heart, what are some of the books, you know, two, three, four books that come to mind that have been a huge source of pleasure, wisdom, joy to you? Uh, these could be, you know, go out and read these yourself. These could just be you bearing witness to the fact that these have been incredible books. It's totally fine if we've heard of them and if we've not heard of them. But but tell me a little bit about sort of the the just the top of the tops for you. Yeah. Well, I I you know the first book that comes to mind is Pascal's Pensées. That was a very formative book for me when I was actually thinking about uh, the issues related to myth of certainty. Kierkegaard was very important. I can't. Uh, I read Kierkegaard in a scattered fashion using anthologies and selections. So I can't, uh, I can't tell you exactly which Kierkegaard books to read, but he helped me uh, tremendously. I've spoken of Solzhenitsyn. He's a personal hero of mine. Flannery O'Connor, uh, her short stories and, and her prose, maybe as much as her short story, her letters and her essays, Habits of Being. T.S. Eliot, the poet, uh, a Welsh poet named R.S. Thomas, who I really liked, a cranky old Welsh pastor. You know, there's just lots of people. There sure are. Well, thank you again. Thank you, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'll put some some information in the in the show notes, as they say, about um, where to how people can get to your website and, and find your books. But very much grateful for your time today. All right. Thanks, Ben. All right, I have indeed added a link in the show notes to Daniel Taylor's personal site where you can find information about all of his books as well as the tours that he leads. On a final note, the friend who I mentioned as having given me the myth of certainty in the first place, Dan Koch, has his own podcast called You Have Permission. And if you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Daniel, you might love that show. Dan has been doing his show for several years, and he's had a number of guests from across the Christian spectrum on the show uh, to talk about everything from science and creationism to LGBT Christians, uh, and, and often contexts and questions that people who grew up in an evangelical context, like he and I both did, will find interesting. You have permission. Check it out. Talk to you next week.